Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Including some of you. <laughs> so I was, I was thinking just about how amorphous we are. And, and one of the, the times that I noticed that the most was when I first started clinical work. Because you watch yourself seeing four, five, six, seven people, let's say, in a day in a very intimate way where you're transformed by whatever the other person is bringing and then you can see how in seven different hours you're seven completely different people and also how difficult <coughs> the day can be if you're trying to be the same person with seven different people like if you have a certain persona that you're trying to maintain, it's hard to allow yourself to become different with different people. Carl Jung says there's nothing wrong with a persona as long as you have a lot of them. <laughs> there's this beautiful line that comes to mind from a poem by Rumi about a wanderer. I don't remember the whole poem, but the first line is the best. And he says, um, who are you really, wanderer? Who are you really? And I think for most of us, the, the place where we feel that we know ourselves the most is actually the place of afflictive emotions. So one of the ways that we tend to <coughs> define ourselves to ourselves predominantly where we feel most ourselves in, is in how we relate to the habit energies that give rise to strong emotions like anger, for example. And this is what I wanted to talk about uh, for the day today is the relationship between afflictive emotions and anger in particular um, and the self. Jack Kornfield has a wonderful uh, chapter in his new book where he has this term that really appeals to me 
really appeals to me, called The Non-Contentious Heart. The Non-Contentious Heart. And in a way, one of the places where we most identify with ourselves is in the place where there's contentiousness or aggression. And anger, in many ways, is one of the more difficult emotions to work with because it's not specific, it's quite amorphous. And unlike noticing a thought arising and passing away, strong emotions like anger don't have a really defined beginning and end. They're they're very cloud-like. And they obviously tend to not just float through like a cloud. It tends to be a storm. Um, But the other thing that's interesting is it's not just that they're amorphous without clear boundaries, but also afflictive emotions like anger happen really fast. And it feels like the stakes are high and that there is only me. Or sometimes it's experienced as only them. (laughs) And so our ability to think is also very contracted. Our ability to take in another perspective is totally impossible. There's no receptivity or listening. And when we feel strong emotions like anger, there also tends to be no feeling. (coughs) Not a lot of feeling. There tends to be a kind of numbness. And we usually think that anger and, or we usually think, for example, just that emotion in general and feeling in general are one and the same thing. But in this practice of noticing feeling, we can allow ourselves to, to stay close to the physicality of bodiness without reacting to it which is actually what gives rise to the emotion. There's a passage in Harvey Aronson's book, which I like a great deal. Um, this is, it's from this book that you, um, that I photocopied the two art chapters on anger that were your homework. Um, he talks about an account at a conference, um, that he was at. A fellow psychiatrist was at a conference, oh, someone else was at a conference, about depression in developing countries. The essence of the lectures was that people in those areas commonly express depression as physical symptoms. They somaticize their depression, to use medical parlance, complaining of malaise, stomach aches, dizziness, and other symptoms that are hard to pin down. Techniques were discussed for dealing with the patient who insists her only problem is a heavy head or a squeezing sensation in the belly, but who is clearly depressed. Toward the end of the meeting, a doctor from India stood up to speak. Distinguished colleagues, he said, have you ever considered the possibility 
that it's not that we in the third world somaticize depression, but rather that you in the developed world psychologize it. (coughs) His comment, my colleague reported, was met with stunned silence. And I, I think this touches on a kind of cultural bias where maybe it's hard sometimes to just trust in the physical expression of some of the emotions that, or some of the feelings that give rise to even stronger emotions. And um, that's why there's a relationship, I think, between starting to work with afflictive emotions and the second foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of feeling. Because you may have noticed in the exercise where we're just tracking feeling that it's hard to keep it as a physical practice. As soon as we start noticing or entering areas in the body where feelings arise that are not what we're expecting, quickly the mind wants to try and know about it. And the knowing about it is okay momentarily, noting something. But what happens is that the knowing about the feeling starts to obscure the possibility of staying with feeling as it manifests, as it expresses itself. In the same way that sound just moves itself. You don't need to make it do anything. And so I think in a certain way there's both a natural, maybe universal, psychological bias there, but there is also a cultural piece there. And we're noticing both these grooves simultaneously. So I'll speak for a little bit more about anger, and then we can talk together, but you can feel free to interrupt me also. And so there's a um, there's some precision we need around our definition of anger because the Buddhist perspective on anger and the way we used anger the term anger in English um, are slightly different. And Harvey Aronson also gives a couple examples which I think are so clear. Did it, did everybody read this? Mostly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he gives a couple of, of examples of how broad the range of meaning is that we ascribe to anger. And the first one is the intent to harm. And the example he gives is, I'm so angry I could kill somebody. The second is, he calls strong reactive dislike. When the caterers burned the food, I was so angry I screamed at them in front of the guests. The three, assertiveness, proclaiming difference, creating independence, and setting boundaries. My roommate assumed I wanted the same pizza she did. I got angry and made it clear that she should have called to check instead of trying to read my mind. And the fourth, protesting injustice, 
We were angered by the bigoted behavior of that organization and decided to create an informational picket. I think these are helpful to understand because of the way we use the term anger. But in the Buddhist perspective, the term anger has to do with a combination of aversion and the intention to cause harm. So when the emotion of anger arises, and it has in it the intention to cause harm, then it's considered an afflictive emotion. And I think sometimes this is confusing because most of the time we hear terms like honor your anger. Honor your anger. And at first this really clicks in some way where we say if there's anger, honor the fact that you're angry right now. And for most of us, I think this is the way we usually work. <coughs> we don't want the anger to be repressed. We don't want it to be underexpressed. We don't want it to be overexpressed out in the world. So, you know, in an intimate relationship or in a clinical situation, we'll want to honor the anger. But the problem is, is from a Buddhist perspective, there are two states of mind that we talked about last time we were together, mental factors of perception, where there are wholesome mental states and unwholesome mental states. And anger is considered an afflictive emotion that leads to suffering. And so what I'd like to focus on today is that it's not anger that we're honoring. It's whatever is happening in present experience that we're honoring. And this is, I think, an important distinction that when anger is arising, we're not honoring anger in particular. We honor whatever is arising in this moment. Because when we use the language that we're honoring anger, it makes the anger acceptable. So in a way, we're trying to accept whatever is present experience, in present experience, but at the same time, seeing that some things that arise in present experience are unwholesome. In other words, the term in Sanskrit is akusala, that they give rise <coughs> to um, discontent. They plant seeds of unhappiness. They don't plant seeds of kindness and benevolence and generosity. And I think what's interesting and why we, we are using um, Harvey Aronson's um, chapters is because this piece also brings up a kind of cross-cultural perspective on anger that I think is sometimes lacking. Any comments or observations so far that anybody would like? Uh huh. That would think. Um, maybe I'm just misunderstanding that. Um, in terms of those sort of four, you know, through the definition, I'm sort of curious about that idea of anger that arises from actual fear. Mm -hmm. That seems to be in it. Yeah. Um, hurt. 
if we stay just with this emotion of anger, it is such a difficult emotion to work with. Our sense of self in the moments that we feel anger are so wrapped up in the emotion. There's so much entanglement that it's really, really difficult. And so I want to sort of describe three different stages of working with anger. And um, a couple of, of weeks ago, I was teaching in Ottawa. And one way of um, talking about working with feeling was using those four stages that we called RAIN. Do you remember that? Does anybody remember what they were? Recognition, acceptance, investigation. Oh, great. <laughs> Very interesting. So we talked about four steps in working with feeling. The first was recognition, to recognize something, to recognize what's actually happening, to recognize what's happening. And lately I've been trying to uh, change that to just stop. <laughs> but then the word, then instead of it being rain, it would be sane. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that would have worked. Um, So to stop and to recognize what's actually happening. Number two, to accept or to allow what's occurring to occur, or as Tara Brock says, radical acceptance. The third step is once you can stop and accept something, then you can start to investigate it. But you can't investigate something you can't accept because then you're not there for the, the body of it there for the entirety of it. And the third is non-identification, that whatever you're feeling does not refer back to an I. No sound that you hear, no feeling that's experienced, even the inhale and exhale do not refer back to a me. There's no me to be found in the process. Um, so the first step in working with anger is really to accept it to accept or to allow anger to be present and also to remember that it's not the object of what we're feeling that we're honoring it's just whatever is happening in present experience so the anger is not some special feeling that deserves 
any more consideration than any other feeling. Anger and an itch three minutes later are equal. My grandmother used to always say, if it's not one thing, it's another. So tracking feeling is a really, really great technique when we're trying to bring some mindfulness to afflictive emotions because they're not as easy to capture. They're not as easy to notice as, for example, a very dominant thought, which has a very clear (coughs) boundary on either end of it. And so accepting what we're feeling involves mindfulness because if we can't bring awareness to what's happening here in present experience, then we're just going to be caught in our avoidance strategies. And I actually think, and this is going to be the second step, but but just to mention it now, that I, I think that very often when we feel anger, our patterns over our lifetimes around the anger are mostly conditioned reactions to the anger. Whether it's the way we justify the anger to ourselves or the way we project the cause of the anger onto others. So most of the time, I think, and for most of us, we really don't know our anger that intimately. We know all the stuff clustered around the anger very intimately, but often not the raw emotion of the anger. And what I mean by knowing it is to really to, to, to really understand it and to feel it, but also then to let it move through us. And so the first step is coming to a place of acceptance. And again, this doesn't mean tolerance. You know, or just pure endurance or something. But actually being able to have a clear recognition. What is this? What emotion is this? To know that this is anger arising. And an example I thought of in relationship to this is um, just the way that sometimes the mind can give us a label for what it is that we're feeling that's not actually accurate. You know? So I remember when I was thinking about this, writing some notes for today, one of the examples that came up was in high school. Um, some people said something to me, and I actually don't even remember what it was. And um, I became very angry. And for a couple of days, I just didn't want to go to school. So I stayed home from school. Well, I didn't stay home, but I, I don't know what I did. I didn't go to school. And um, I was just stewing about these people. And 
contemplating every negative trait about each and every one of them and the group as a whole. <coughs> and uh, about, you know, how I would leave this high school and go to another high school. And, and then on the second day of this, I, I couldn't sleep. I was up all night. And then I remember asking myself, what is it about this anger that has got me so worked up that it's it's waking me up in a kind of panic. It's actually the root of the word panic is the god Pan. Pan is the one who, who comes and wakes you up in the night because there's something to pay attention to. And then I, right away when I asked that question, I became very clear that what I actually felt was embarrassment. I was embarrassed by some things people said. And it's interesting that now I don't even remember what they said. But I remember this switch, which is that I wasn't actually angry. <laughs> and, it, and I had been calling this anger, oh, I'm angry at this person, I'm angry at that person. But what I was actually feeling was embarrassment. And so often we, we label what we're feeling, but so often the label's not <coughs> accurate. It's just a, a spontaneous, instinctual response. And the response sometimes is actually a form of aversion. So if the first step is a clear recognition of what we're feeling, the, the, on the heels of that recognition, the mindfulness begins to unpack the cluster of feelings that we're calling anger. So it's interesting. Has anybody here ever felt anger? <laughs> and I mean, if you just pick an episode in your life where Maybe just pick the time where you were most angry, if you can recollect for a moment. Yesterday. <laughs> I mean, before this course started. <laughs> and it's interesting because when you, when you contemplate anger, it's a cluster of feeling. And so, as we start to breathe and bring awareness to the anger, it's important to notice what else is in the cluster. So the example I gave was embarrassment. You know, but, but often there are unexpected feelings inside that cluster. And it's too easy to just use the umbrella term anger, when in fact there are so many dominant feelings, maybe five or six of them, underneath that umbrella <coughs> that we call anger. Yeah. Can I just tell you the situation that happened? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the reason it is, because it comes so aware to me how this is exactly what took place. Mm-hmm. However, if, we ha- if I had not been in the company of, of uh, mindful people, mm-hmm. <laughs> it would not have it would have 
how important the mindfulness is. Yeah. But it, it, you know, it doesn't happen very much. Yeah. I was out um, with the first Indian food dinner, and um, my daughter's having some troubles with being alone. And so she, I was talking to her on the phone, and by the end of the conversation, I was angry. Mm-hmm. So I came down, sat down with the group, and I just say this one fellow in particular who practiced. And so it was just amazing how by him questioning and working and seeing that there was transference going on, there was control, there was, um, you know, sort of uh, the mother fixing it, you know, there's all kinds of different things going on at that particular moment. But what I guess what I realized now is if that had not happened, I would have just been angry, and then it really caused a problem with yeah. my daughter and I. Uh-huh. reflection is a kind of mirror in a way, right? And um, uh, there's a wonderful story that I was uh, talking on recently where the Buddha the Buddha is with his son Rahula, who's seven years old. I've been going through the Pali Canon trying to find good stories of the Buddha when he was working with his son when he was young. And uh, his son's seven years old, and he catches his son lying. And um, then when he calls his son on the line, the son feels shame that he lied. And the Buddha says to his son, if you don't feel shame, then who knows what you're capable of? (coughs) And so... The best thing about lying is the shame. Because the shame, he says, and he uses the term mirror, the shame is a mirror for you to see karma. The, the shame is a mirror so that you can see an action and the effect of your action. I, and I have this with my son all the time in a different way. You know, um, is uh, he's five years old and has so much energy. So there's always 50 times in the day on a good day where we have to just say, would you stop? 
<laughs> Whatever it is, you know. Last night it was we were trying to barbecue and he was taking the hose and spraying it on the barbecue <laughs> because um, it was amazing, right? The the water hits the top of the barbecue and steam comes up and it's so exciting, you know. And uh, and he didn't want to stop, so I asked him, you know, nine or ten times, and he was still, you know, watering the barbecue, and. Um, and of course, sometimes you're going to say, would you just stop? And it's fine. And sometimes there's this little bit of temper or anger that forgets that he's having a great time and that he's experimenting and that actually watering the barbecue is fine, <laughs> you know. And, um, and so for me, it's always, you know, at nighttime, going to sleep, and just, I always turn on the light and just look at him for a few minutes or a few seconds before I go to sleep. And you know, kids pretty much younger than 15, I would say, when they're sleeping, still look like babies, <laughs> you know. And, um, and that always is a mirror for me. It's like I remember, you know, the most unskillful things I said during the day. And um, and so this is all a time for mindfulness. You know, sometimes the mindfulness can happen in the moment, but sometimes it can't, and we get entangled in our habit of, you know, whatever it is. But then the feeling, the residue that we're left with later in the day, can become a mirror that can show us what actions are skillful and what actions are not skillful. And our son, when he sleeps, he often sleeps on his back with his arms out like this. A lot of babies sleep like this, right? Their arms are up. Like, you know, when you're an adult, you <laughs> get into a ball, <laughs> wrapping sheets around, <laughs> you know, trying to get back into the womb. <laughs> and babies, there's this just kind of. Uh, such innocent, unprotected. <laughs> so the first stage is acceptance and clear recognition. And the second stage, which I think is still kind of the first step, is just to start to unpack the, the cluster of the afflictive emotion. And then as you, on the heels of unpacking the cluster, as we start to track what feelings are there, we simultaneously notice our avoidance strategies. You can't help it. You can't help but notice how as you're bringing awareness to feeling, um, you're also going to notice how you want to jump out of it. And so I think it's important, again, to understand how the sequence is set up with the four foundations of mindfulness, that if you haven't had some foundation of just being able to stay with the breath, inhaling and exhaling, 
starting to go deeper now into more chronic holding patterns or stronger emotions is going to be quite difficult. It's going to be hard to stay with deeper patterns or more ancient emotions if you can't just stay with the inhale and exhale. And, you know, one one thing I was reflecting on, too, yesterday in, in thinking about this topic of anger, um, it's so interesting, you know, if we have a topic that I'm supposed to talk about, whatever I'm going to talk about just starts appearing in my life, like all week <laughs> leading up to the... <laughs> so yesterday, just in, the more I was contemplating anger, the more I was getting agitated. <laughs> It's like you just call it, call it up. And, you know, one, one of the, the emotions that came to mind that I think is also, or one, one, one of the, 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 the factors in the cluster of anger that came to mind was uh, boredom. And just reflecting on how much our experience is or our motivation is organized to avoid boredom or to avoid embarrassment or to avoid loneliness how much of your day is organized to avoid boredom and maybe for you boredom is not the the primary uh, piece in that cluster. Maybe it's something else. But I think culturally, boredom is a big one. So again, to unpack the cluster, we're going to do some exercises around this later on. The, so I'd say this is the first step. And the second step is um, wisdom. And what we mean by wisdom is a kind of discriminative awareness as opposed to judgment. So where there's awareness that this particular emotion or feeling <coughs> is going to be conducive to waking up. And this particular feeling is going to be conducive to dukkha, to more suffering. And I think sometimes in our understanding of emotions in therapy, we often think about emotions as something to work with or something to transform, but we don't often give them that much value. We don't pass a kind of value judgment on them. And that's being done here, is that certain mind states are conducive to waking up, like generosity, kindness, and so on. And certain mindsets, like anger, are not conducive to waking up. They're conducive to planting more seeds in the mind, body, and culture that perpetuate that particular emotion. So it's not that they're unacceptable, 
but it's that they're unskillful. Anger can be used to wake up if it's checked. Like basically, if you look into it, anything can. But when it's checked, it's often not anger anymore. There's much more happening there. So, in my own life, when I've experienced anger in at a time where I've had space to stay with it. Um, one of the ways that I've been able to sort of accept it in that moment is just saying, it's okay. Or sometimes that becomes like a mantra. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Or same with something like uh, fear. It's okay. Whatever is presenting itself, that's what's here. That's what we stay with. <coughs> Any questions? Comments? But I'm, I'm still struggling with uh, the terminology around feelings, emotions, sensations. Mm -hmm. And I guess from uh, one of our earlier weekends, maybe when we talked about Paintball Sutra, mm -hmm. I had in my mind remembering that, that the term feeling is used slightly differently and that it's sort of that simple positive, negative, and neutral. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that was what I was trying to work with. Yeah. For this past month. Yeah. But it also sounds like at times, and, and perhaps even this morning by you, the first time I'm asking, to describe some combination of emotion <laughs> and sensation. Yeah. These get crowded. Um. Well, I want to try a little exercise together, and so I wonder if trying the exercise together might start to make this more clear than if I describe it with words. Yeah. So we'll hold on to the question. Good. <laughs> um, I just uh, talking about anger. I got a visualization of maybe you could think of anger as a bullet. Uh huh. And sort of, you know, the bullet is. A hole and does the piercing, but it's full of um, gunpowder, which is really maybe the cluster. Sure. Yeah, so that yeah. would be a good way of thinking about anger. Yeah, that's a nice that image. Filled with stuff, mm -hmm. but it's that first emotion, that first feeling yeah. of anger that sort of does the piercing. Yeah. Maybe with somebody, but yeah. it's really filled with something else. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, I mean, a bullet's a nice image because it's also usually aimed at something else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. I had a, an awareness of meditation, like the breath meditation we're doing every day, that 
Yeah, when we get to later steps with this, you'll see how the same goes for positive feelings. Um, and we'll talk about that more when we start talking about the identification with the feeling. Uh-huh. 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 Yeah. I said this last last time we met, but I, I think that that piece is the part of this puzzle that's particularly Buddhist. And I think some of the other teachings around suffering and around impermanence are not particularly Buddhist. But the piece around emptiness of self is. And, uh, and as we're going to see later today, that's going to be the key in transforming anger is non-identification. Because who's experiencing the anger? But as I introduced the topic today, I was also trying to plant the seed to remind us that it's actually those intense emotions that make us feel most like me. And so it's actually the undoing of the identification with those emotions that's really going to transform those emotions, especially if they're chronic. Yes, it's an important knot to untie. Well, it's not about you. <coughs> Nothing is. <laughs> Nothing is. You don't, nothing belongs to you. Not your body, not your thoughts, not your feelings, no sounds. It's not you. Tony, did you have your hand? Uh, yeah, uh, anger and rage are uh, They can be. I think rage is, you know, and resentment. I think they, those three go together. Resentment is just like <clears throat> anger over time. Right. And rage is, you know, um, anger with no feeling in it. Yeah, no it flexibility. It seems to me that, uh, like the gunpowder analogy is like 
have a slow burn and then you have like the explosion. Yeah. And to me the rage is like me, 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 like that that's a I find interesting too, that to me rage is like an explosion of this is like me. Yeah. Uh in a road rage. Yeah. An example of, of yeah. that. But uh I had this experience of like having been thinking about this anger and so on and, and watching the uh, YouTube thing and I was they're building a house next door to us, mm-hmm. right outside of uh, my bedroom window. It's 622 mm-hmm. in the morning. This guy has his nail gun. And, goes, <laughs> and so I just like, I jumped out of bed like, oh my god. And then I realized, what time is it? It's, it can't start on a Saturday until it's on So I'm going, I'm very pleased with myself. Right? I'm angry now. Mm-hmm. What am I going to say to him? Right? And so I. I, I He's laying outside my window, so I have no problem having mm-hmm. discussion with him. <laughs> I say to him, do you have a watch? You know, and, I, and he says, yes. And what time is it? And he tells me the time. And I say, well, you're not allowed to start till 7. And mm-hmm. he says, oh. So, you know, that went all very well. Uh-huh. And then, it just exploded <laughs> out of me. And I cursed. There's no use of the curse. And I was so disappointed with myself afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm well behaved. Yeah. <laughs> and then this rage just came right yeah. out of me. And, sure. and then I'm thinking what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, I guess part of it is just a sort of almost central nervous system assault. So, you know, I was dead asleep and then the next moment I'm like this. And that's mm-hmm. how it felt. It felt like an explosion. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think rage is like. Yeah. saying by taking care of the anger is that you're taking care with that rage that's arising and some of you have studied with me his 14 teachings on mindfulness where in one of them he says if you're angry you should not say or do anything you should practice mindful walking and mindful breathing you should not say or do anything Even when it peaks, even if it's fear. I had this experience this week. On Tuesday, I took three five-year-olds to Center Island. Um, Partly because I love going to the island, but also because um, I really don't like rides, and particularly roller coasters. And so everything there is really tame. And so uh, we got there, and we had a little picnic, and then we went to Center Island and bought our tickets. And uh, then I said, okay, let's go on some rides. Where do you want to go? And they all said, the roller coaster. (laughs) So I said, okay, well, so let's go on the roller coaster and I'll watch. And we get there and they were all too short to go by themselves. So they had to be accompanied. So I thought, okay, we'll take a car and there's two, like there's four seats in each little car. And uh, so I would sit with our son 
and then the other two five-year-olds would sit in front of us. Well, you're not allowed to, actually. Uh, each kid, if they're under the height, has to be sitting. So I realized that I was going to have to go three times <laughs> on, this, on this ride, you know. So we get on the, so I get on the ride, and, uh, you know, for some of you ride roller coasters, it's a joke, but really, they freak me out. And, um, so we get on the ride, and, and right away you go up a hill, and then it wraps around this kind of circle that it circles twice, and then it goes uphill, it does the same thing. And, um, and we're going up the hill, you know, and I, you know, I'm holding on really tight. And the kids are totally relaxed, you know. And, um, and then as we were coming down the hill, I realized I'm not breathing, you know. And then so I found that if we were going down the hill and around the corner, which is concave slightly, if I inhaled, it was really quite exhilarating, you know. And every time that I held my breath, the fear would start to arise or the discomfort. And every time we would go down the hill, uh, into the corner, if I started inhaling, it would just, it would be so much fun. And, um, so I got to do this three times. And, um, and you know, it was great. And, um, I was ready to go back and do it again. <laughs> Did you thank so, the kids for accompanying you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought that maybe we should go on the uh, merry-go-round for a while. Okay. <laughs>